If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Today, we've got a wealth of medicine available to us, often easily taken in our own homes. But how did a person in the Middle Ages cure something as simple as a headache? Well, a major new project at Cambridge University Library is aiming to find out. They're digitising, cataloguing and conserving over 180 medieval manuscripts, containing well over 8,000 unedited medical recipes, to uncover how people in the past used ingredients like faeces, puppy stomachs and eel grease to help with health issues that still face us today. Emily Briffitt spoke to Dr James Freeman, a medieval manuscript specialist, to find out more. We're here today to talk all about medieval medical recipes, and we're definitely going to examine these up close in a moment. But before we start, I think it's important to put into context why we're chatting today. You're currently the principal investigator for the Curious Cures in Cambridge Libraries project. So can you tell us more about what this project is and what it hopes to achieve? So the the project is being led by myself and Cambridge University Library, and it's a project to digitise, catalogue and conserve 186 medieval manuscripts that contain medical recipes. So these range in date from, I think the earliest one in in the selection is 10th century, Um, but most of them are 14th or 15th century. And um, they are all handwritten books. And there are some at Cambridge University Library, but it's also a collaborative project with other libraries that hold this kind of material in Cambridge. So the Fitzwilliam Museum, 
is one collaborator and various of the college libraries, Gonville and Keys and Trinity have big collections of this sort of material, but also several others have have the odd manuscript here and there. So it's a kind of collaborative um, endeavour. Curious Cures is being funded by um, Wellcome and one of their Research Resources Awards grants, which are intended to support archives, special collections, libraries, those sorts of places, to make their collections more accessible to researchers in in the field. So what we're doing in in addition to the usual um, digitisation, cataloguing and conservation, which is, you know, not, not a small job, on top of that, we're also going to be transcribing the recipes in full. So all of these manuscripts contain unedited medical recipes, by which I mean that the vast majority have never been published in print. So it's quite difficult for researchers to to access them and analyse them. So let's imagine there's a researcher who is interested in treatments for headaches. They would have to do an enormous amount of trawling to to get at these, to, to find where these recipes are. So the transcription phase is going to make the content of these recipes um, keyword searchable, you know, kind of a control F sort of thing, if you know what I mean, but also potentially to do something a little bit more kind of a, a globally analytical, as it were, to kind of take this as a corpus of, of text and analyse it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what we've got to do in two years. It's, it's no problem. <laughs> Sounds an extraordinary amount of work for such a short time. We've got a team of three project catalogers who are experts in different ways with medieval manuscripts. So their expertise really complements one another. So this, that they're hard at work upstairs from where I'm sitting, describing the contents of these manuscripts. So identifying what texts they contain, describing their... Uh, material and physical characteristics so what they're made of is it parchment is it paper is it a kind of combination you know how is the text laid out what kind of decoration is there what's the structure of the leaves of the manuscript which is a kind of crucial piece of information for understanding both the current current state of the manuscript as well as also for identifying evidence of what its previous states may have been and also describing what those manuscripts' object histories are. So when they were made, where they were made to the degree that we can tell, and sometimes the evidence isn't always completely clear. And also as part of those object histories, the provenance of those manuscripts. So what evidence there is in the book or in any kind of associated record that might be connected with it as to who has owned that book over the course of its lifetime. And again, Sometimes we, we, we don't know very much about that. Sometimes we have a bit more detail. And then also, finally, how the manuscript has come to Cambridge University Library. I mean, many of these manuscripts um, have been with us for um, centuries. So, yes, that's the project. There's so much to dive into there. One thing you mentioned, though, is that many of the manuscripts are from the 14th and 15th century. Is there a potential reason why this is? I think there's a number of factors, potentially. I, I, I mean, there, there is the temptation, of course, to look at the 14th century and think, aha, they, 
they've lived, people have lived through a pandemic. What parallels can we draw between the 14th century and, and, and our time, uh, having lived through COVID, um, st- still living through it, arguably? And I, I, I'm a bit reluctant to, to, to draw that kind of comparison. Those, th- these are two very different epidemic diseases. The rates of mortality have been bad, but nowhere on the scale of, of the Black Death. And the way in which we've responded to it, there's some similarities. But I, I think drawing too close a comparison is, is perhaps not, not helpful. But what I would say is that if one might suggest, and I'm being quite tentative here, that the experience of living through a pandemic, one parallel we could draw is that it's made us individually and as a collective much more mindful of our health and what we need to do to improve it and and protect it and maintain it. I think you could suggest that you see a similar phenomenon happening in the 14th and 15th centuries, and these remedy books, these recipes are a witness to that, that people want to get hold of medical information about how they might solve any number of different ailments from the really quite mundane, the sorts of things that we struggle with still today, you know, headaches, toothaches, diarrhoea, that kind of thing. Those things, they've not gone away. But And also the quite extreme illnesses, you know, rankled wounds, which is probably some kind of infection, worms that eat the eyelids, canker that breeds in a man's mouth, that, that kind of thing. So people are wanting to, to, to access this sort, of med- this sort of medical knowledge and there's a demand for these sorts of treatments. And the manuscripts themselves are not the sole witness to this sort of impetus post-bubonic plague. There are civic um, ordinances increasingly, instructing people to remove dung heaps, keep sewers clean, that kind of thing. You know, the day-to-day business of trying to keep a city clean. We're still struggling with that too, aren't we? As well as um, even, in some cases, plans to pipe clean water into a city centre, which you might be forgiven for thinking is a pretty modern innovation. Well, no, they were trying to do this in the medieval period too. And also, there's material evidence as well as documentary evidence, that people are increasingly owning equipment, if you could call it that, to help them stay clean. So basins, ewers and jugs, that kind of thing, for helping them wash. These are recorded in their, in their inventories of their goods, in their wills. You know, they're giving their worldly possessions to their inheritors or their friends um, but we also see it in sort of the you know what's archaeological evidence that's left. So so the books are part of that kind of ecosystem, and I would I'd like to think that the project will help to place them in that. I mean, there are other broader factors at stake. For instance, increasing levels of literacy in the 14th and 15th centuries, um, the introduction of paper as an appropriate and in some cases cheaper writing support than parchment, which is animal skin, which is making the process of book production a little more convenient and cheaper. And also the development, um, if you really want to take a deep dive into the into the book historical dimension, which as you can probably gather is like my my kind of niche, niche, niche even, the development and introduction of cursive styles of handwriting, 
which makes the process of copying manuscripts much quicker. So, of course, this is before the invention of printing. If I say to you Gothic handwriting and you think of that really kind of angular script that paleographers would call textura, like it's kind of like it's woven, like the letters are woven together, that's really quite time-consuming and difficult to copy well, and you scribes had to be pretty skilled to do it. By this time, we've started copying books in cursive scripts, which derived ultimately from styles of handwriting used for copying documents. It's a business context. You need to write out a contract or an agreement. You've got to do it quickly, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Off it goes, and right, you're on to the next one. You know, these poor scriveners who are having to churn this stuff out day in, day out their, their entire lives. They start to be used for book production, which speeds up the process as well. So there's lots of things going on at this time that's that's facilitating and encouraging the di- the dissemination of this kind of this kind of knowledge, but also this kind of manuscript in particular. I'd really like to talk about some of the treatments and perhaps some of the ingredients used in a moment. But while we're on this note, if say the listeners and I came and joined you at the, and the project team and came and had a look at these manuscripts, what would we be seeing? What are these manuscripts actually like? What you would see if I, let's say it were possible for me to get all of the manuscripts that the project is covering out on a big enough table, you'd see an incredible range of types of book, ranges of formats, some very large manuscripts, let's say a really beautifully illuminated Bible, which has got a couple of remedies, you know, scribbled on one of the end leaves, through to medical treatise, let's say, that's in a sort of format that you would use for studying, but not necessarily particularly portable. We imagine a sort of hardback book or a little bit larger, right down to the small, and I mean this literally pocket-sized manuscript, clearly designed to be carried around by, by a medical practitioner or somebody to be produced when they needed to consult it for some kind of uh, one would like to think that the, you know they're by the bedside as it were i couldn't quite go that far but it does they do bring these particularly the little recipe compilations they do bring you close to that kind of patient practitioner interaction and that's one of the reasons why they're really they're, they're really um they're really intriguing as materials for study now because of that range it's difficult to kind of make a generalization about visually what you're going to see but, I mean, I think for the most part, if I say to somebody medieval manuscripts, you know, you have this idea of these beautiful illuminations and that kind of thing, you know, the like Christopher de Hamel's meeting with remarkable manuscripts. Christopher taught me when I was a, an undergraduate and it's, it's all his fault that I'm, um, <laughs> that I'm now a medieval manuscripts person because I went to a class as a student that he taught and I was kind of hooked. So, um, and here I am. 20, 20 years later. So they're not, for the most part, they're not these, you know, beautiful, beautifully illuminated or decorated manuscripts. There'll be a few because, of course, we're covering, it's the the recipe content that's determining our selection of the manuscripts. So there'll be a few really nicely illuminated ones, but not many. Most are quite workaday and a bit uh, dull, even visually. You know, they might have the odd um, little painted initial in them to break up the text, is a common feature in manuscripts. There might be a bit of rubrication, you know, text written in red ink or underlined in red ink to to help pick out 
a little title or, or kind of chapter heading. But for the most part, they'll be pretty functional, you could say. But actually, I think that's quite important because, understandably, the focus of digitization projects has tend- so far has tended to be on these really beautiful manuscripts, the really visual stuff, you know, lovely miniatures and decorated, historiated initials, you know, these little funny little scenes. Um, you know, you think of something like uh, the Littlington Missal at the British Library, you know, that's got these wonderful um, portraits or, or little badapage scenes, so the little um, scenes in the bottom margin of the page, you know, that that kind of document rural life in, in 14th century Lincolnshire. But then kind of right next to that are these totally weird and wonderful, you know, animal hybrids. And you think the artist must have been, you know, what were they taking um, that, that gave them these these incredibly strange, you know, animal fantasy hybrid creatures that they've, they've painted into these books. Um, so the, the tendency has been to focus so far on, on this sort of material or on the really old stuff, um, you know, and and the culturally incredibly significant material. So the, the focus of digitization projects has tended not to be on these rather more mundane manuscripts, but they were part of book culture, written culture in the medieval period too. And the audience, uh, readership, and the people who were receiving the contents of these books in some way is vastly greater so i think you know medical historians and historians of medicine you know they've 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 been arguing this case for years and i'm i'm a i'm a kind of late comer um so i don't want to say that i'm i'm pioneering anything here i'm i'm just i'm trying to um provide them with the materials to, to kind of help help their research on its way um so yes what can the way that these manuscripts and recipes look what can that tell us about how medical knowledge was transferred or who it was used by so a a kind of common question I'm asked when I'm teaching students you know particularly if this is like the first time that they're they're ever seeing or getting to handle a medieval manuscript uh, in a class is how long did this take to make and how much did it cost and and the answer to those is, well, we don't know. It's almost impossible to say, except in a few cases that are, that have been well documented, but they're the exception, not the rule. So trying to answer those that sort of question quantitatively isn't very satisfying. But qualitatively, you can begin to say something a bit more informative. So... Uh, so I mentioned the, the, the different styles of handwriting that are being used. So if a book is being copied in something that's a set, formal book hand, that's going to take the scribe more time. It's probably going to take up more space on the page, so it's going to use more parchment. It's going to require a greater degree of skill on the part of the scribe as well, so it might cost more to pay somebody to do it. Whereas a cursive script, kind of the opposite is the case. You can cram the text into the page, you can abbreviate it, so there's a whole way, a whole range of abbreviations for ways of abbreviating common combinations of letters in in both Latin and Middle English um, manuscripts, Middle English being the vernacular language that's spoken in the 14th and 15th centuries, you know, the the language of Chaucer, as it were. And so that's that's one kind of dimension um, to it. In terms of their format, 
there are manuscripts among those that the project is covering, which um, clearly were designed to be carried around in someone's pocket. So um, we've got a manuscript here at the university library and it's, oh, it's no more than I would say about 10 centimetres tall and about eight centimetres wide, like a little pocket dictionary, really, if anybody still uses those. And that clearly has a kind of, you know, it's, a port, it's got a portable function. But the interesting thing is that it's it's been copied in quite a nice style of handwriting, you know, in a sort of semi-formal script. Um, it doesn't look homemade. In fact, if anything, it actually looks like it's been made commercially, sort of on spec. You know, you can go to your, your stationer, your bookseller in 1410, say, which is, a, you know, around the late 14th, early 15th century, which was when this was made. And we know of places where there's a very active book trade, concentrations of people who were engaged in the bookmaking craft. So around St Paul's Cathedral in London, Cat Street in, in Oxford, um, and, um, you know, go and buy your, buy your little remedy book. And it actually begins, if I can just go off on a tangent, it begins with like a little little poem that basically tells you what this book can do which makes me think it's being sold in this way. You know, this is like a little advertisement. It says, The man that will of leechcraft leer, read on this book and he may hear, many a medicine both good and true, to heal sores both old and new. Herein are medicines without fable, to heal all sores that are curable, struggling a bit with the rhyme scheme there, of sickered knife and of arrow, be the wound wide or narrow, of spear, of quarrel, of dagger, of dart, to make him whole in each part. So this is an example, I think, I think there's evidence to suggest that this is a manuscript that's being copied. You know, there's probably dozens and dozens of copies of this being made and they're being sold on spec rather than somebody coming along and commissioning the copy of a specific uh, exemplar that they've, that they've got hold of. Now, in comparison to that, there's another manuscript um, which the university library acquired again around the same time. Actually, both of these examples we purchased, I think, in the in the early 1990s, and that is very much a homemade manuscript. Or the material evidence points to it being a homemade manuscript. So it's what I sometimes say is it's like a medieval or a late medieval equivalent of a ring binder or a filofax almost. So if you imagine, there's a rough or thick, stiff strip of leather as the spine. There are little leather cords that are stitched through holes on in this. And then onto those are attached gatherings of paper, so folded sheets of paper that have been folded into like a little booklet. This is what a book historian calls a choir, which is the fundamental building block of, of, a, of a medieval manuscript. And somebody has copied recipes onto these onto these leaves of, of paper. And then when they've needed, they've run out of room and they've needed more, they've gone and got another choir and they've, they've stitched it on. And you could just continue extending your book in this way. And the leather wrapper is also very homemade. It's a bit of a kind of Frankenstein's monster, if you will. So there's, you know, bits of old brown leather that have just been stitched together and they're all sorts of shapes and sizes. And it folds around the, the fore edge of the manuscript. So the the side opposite to the spine, as it were. So it protects it from the elements. And it's about A5 size, roughly. 
again, very portable, and it would have had a little button. Uh, it's still got a toggle on the front that would have gone round that that button, that leather button or something, to hold it closed as well. So it's it's been designed to be carried around, and it it's protected from from the elements, as I say. That's why, in particular, not only the content but the material format of these books is particularly alluring and interesting because they that they're a witness to the the practical application and the practical use of these books. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. At the beginning of each chapter, there's a little historiated initial, so a fancy decorated letter that contains a little scene that relates to the content of that chapter. So the chapter with leeches begins with, you know, there's a little letter with a man with his feet in, in a river, and these little black things crawling up his legs. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So I'd like to move on a little to talk a bit about what people actually required treatment for? What sort of ailments were they suffering from and how were they actually treated? So there's a lot that we will we will recognise in what I'm about to say because there are illnesses and ailments in these manuscripts that we still struggle with today. I've got a manuscript here in front of me so I can read out a few examples. So headache, evil hearing, so, you know, loss of loss of hearing, to clear the sight or red eyes watering eyes, sore eyes, sore throat and sore mouth, somebody who's lost their speech or is coughing up blood, for bad breath, toothache, speaking in your sleep, somebody who's lost their appetite, how to bring it back, you know, so there's there's a whole there's a whole range of both the kind of quotidian day-to-day remedies and then there are some other you know, more grisly ones like rankled wounds, which are probably some kind of infection or um, canker that breeds in a man's mouth. There's a whole range. Now, in terms of the ingredients, again, it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a, bit of a mix. It's not always straightforward, I should say, identifying what some of these ingredients are. So some are very familiar or will be very familiar to us, or at least the names of them are familiar. So there are herbs that you would find, you know, in your garden or on the supermarket shelf that are named in these recipes. So sage, rosemary, thyme, um, perennial 
plants that you you would you would know in a garden you know betony rue that kind of thing there's also a range of sort of you know the kind of normal sort of animal products honey milk these are often components in a recipe as well as you know wine vinegar beer those sorts of things we get into slightly stranger territory when we're dealing with with animal products however and a lot of these recipes contain you know, some of it's quite ordinary. Um, you know, I've got a, a recipe here for um, for the scab, uh, which describes the use of um, sheep's tallow. So, you know, the kind of the, the fat off a sheep. I mean, I've, I, there's a recipe I know which um, uses eel grease. But then there are some rather weirder ones. So, for instance, this um, there's a recipe for web in the eye, which might describe some kind of cloudy film that's that's appeared on the surface of the eye, a cataract maybe. And it says, um, take gall of a hare and honey pured um, of each alike, so the same quantities of hare's gall and purified honey, and muddle them together, so mix them together, and with a feather lay it on the web in thine eye, and it shall break it within three nights and save the site on warranties. Now, one of the interesting things that the project might begin to throw up is how common the use of these sorts of weird and wonderful ingredients uh, might be. Because, as I said before, researchers haven't been able, because these manuscripts haven't been published in print before, to study and analyse them in a, in a global way. What do I mean by that? Well, to understand how a particular remedy, for instance, has developed over the course of time. You know, has it appeared and then dis fallen by the wayside and disappeared because it's not actually very good? Or have its ingredients been tweaked and changed as time has gone on? What variations might exist? So with transcriptions of these recipes it might be possible to start to do that kind of comparative analysis it's been difficult for researchers to kind of join the dots across these manuscripts um, now this is just a sample of 186 uh i would say just that's quite a lot and i estimated when we were putting the project proposal together that they, they might contain about 8,000 medical recipes now i've since put together a spreadsheet which lists all the manuscripts and all the pages where we know recipes to be found. And there's already way in excess of 6,000 pages of medical recipes, and they're often quite short texts. But it's quite easy, I've found, even you know, with only maybe 10 or 15 minutes, half an hour with a few manuscripts, to start finding the same or very similar recipes in each of them. So we have that recipe for web in the eye that has gallbladder and and purified honey and you you you're putting it on your eye over the course of 3 nights with a feather and there's another manuscript which has it says it describes it as an ointment proved for the web in the eye uh and it gives actually two remedies the first one uh, says uh take right sour isil which is basically like sour vinegar uh, and the juice of woad, the plants, or of lead, a juice of lead. Now, you might be thinking, what on earth is that? Well, actually, that is ointment prepared by boiling butter, skimming it and stirring it in a lead mortar until black. So juice of woad or of lead or of alum and the juice of cold wort. 
which is a sort of unfermented brewing liquor, uh, and do them all in a vessel, um, a cover, you know, boil them up in a covered vessel and let it stand to kind of, you know, infuse. And when thou hast need, do it to thine eye. So that's a different sort of formulation that you apply to your eye. And then after that, it says also, like here's another one, take the gall of a hair and honey by even portions, mingle them together and anoint his eye therewith and he shall be whole. So like he'll be well again. So almost not very far off word for word, this is the same recipe as the, the one that I read out to you. So we might start to begin to build up those kinds of connections. What are the common recipes in a particular remedy? Uh, what are the common ingredients in a particular recipe, I should say? What is the common combination of recipes in a particular compilation? And so how is this knowledge being circulated and transferred? Now, that is just the remedy books, you know, these receptaria manuscripts talking to one another. What we might be able to shed more light on, through, as a co- or researchers might be able to shed more light on as a consequence of this project, is the interface between this kind of remedy book and the more academic medical treatises that are being circulated, which themselves contain recipes. Is that traffic one way? Are what we're seeing in these vernacular recipe books just a derivative of those academic books? And if so, how has that knowledge been translated and transferred? So that could be, you know, that's quite potentially quite interesting. Do we know if any of these recipes were successful or perhaps not so successful? So this is a kind of challenge with with studying these uh, manuscripts, is getting a sense of, you know, did anybody really try this? Was this actually used? And it can be difficult to tell. You might infer that it's being used from the fact that a particular recipe is being copied and recopied and, and and passed down. It's, you know, it's not dropping out of circulation, say. So you might infer from that that people want this knowledge and, and they want it because they want to use it. Now, there are some annotations in the manuscripts that suggest that people are testing and experimenting with these books, with the recipes that they contain. So I mentioned before in what I was reading out, this recipe that ended you know, on warranties, like kind of guaranteed, like this is going to work. That's actually written into the recipe itself. But sometimes you find annotations in the margin which will say probatum, probatum est, which is just a Latin phrase saying, you know, proven, tried and tested, essentially. On the other hand, you sometimes find individual recipes or even whole pages that have been struck through. And sometimes also with the word carve like watch out this probably doesn't work or it's dangerous um so there's something to indicate that people are trying things out or they may have conferred with somebody else as to whether something worked or not so there's some evidence of this kind of these trial and error processes of experimentation and i think if this recipe project if the transcriptions make it possible for researchers to do that kind of longitudinal comparative textual analysis, which is just a fancy way of saying, how has the wording of a recipe changed over time? We might begin to get a sense of of those processes in a more concrete way. Like, what actually does it mean when somebody says, 
carve or probatumest? And what impact does that have on how a particular recipe or combination of recipes is being circulated? Do they do they drop out of circulation? Does somebody tweak the ingredients? Does the combination of ingredients differ depending on the, the material context in which a particular remedy is being transmitted? So, you know, let's say you've got a really nice medical manuscript. So, for instance, at the library, at the university library here, we have a copy of um, Aldebrandino of Siena's Regime de Sante, um, which was we know was owned by Henry VII and his and his wife their coat of arms are painted in the in the in the front um so Henry the 7th and Elizabeth of York and that is a sort of how to guide um a sort of you know if you will late medieval guide to wellness and self care so there are described in it um and it's written in french courtly language um, that the aristocracy would have been fluent in um there are described uh particular medical procedures, um, you know, the use of um, leeches. And there's a little, at the beginning of each chapter, there's a little historiated initial. So a fancy decorated letter that contains a little scene that relates to the content of that chapter. So the chapter with leeches begins with, you know, there's a little letter with a man with his feet in, in a river and these little black things crawling up his legs. Diagnostic procedures are described. So there's a, um, there's a chapter on on urines. So then, as now, look, examining a patient's urine is a common diagnostic technique. It's colour, it's consistency, that kind of thing. And there are, in some of these manuscripts, diagrams called the ring of urines, which, you know, there are little little glass bottles with different coloured liquids in them. Um, I mean, I have to say, if, if, if your urine is the colour in some of those bottles, you've, you've got serious problems. Um, <laughs> but also this, this um, the Régime de Sante describes, you know, ear examinations, eye examinations, what sort of foods you should eat, you know, a, a, a good and healthy diet, exercise you should take, walking, swimming, that kind of thing. So in a manuscript like this, we might see in those sorts of contexts different kinds of ingredients being used compared to the more humble recipe book Uh, so you know a more expensive ingredient that in another remedy book has been substituted for something cheaper and more readily available so although most of the manuscripts that the project is covering are late medieval and and english meaning both written in english or just simply made in england but written in latin um, or sometimes and in fact, this is very common, written in a combination of English and Latin. Nevertheless, the, the project is covering some manuscripts that, are, that were made in Europe as well. This is an international exchange of knowledge and people are travelling back and forth between these places. In fact, there are several manuscripts at Peterhouse, one of the colleges in Cambridge, and they were owned by the master of that college um, in the late 15th century who was a trained physician um, it's thought that he trained in in uh, in Italy, but we don't know for certain. But he left to the college several books, some of which were made in Italy, academic medical treatises to which he's added, to which he or, and some other owners have added recipes in the margins. So that kind of connection is quite interesting. And you can you can say the same thing about the ingredients. 
some of these are clearly being gathered, you know, locally, you know, they're plants and, and readily available ingredients, and others are being imported from elsewhere. Obviously, you're only partway through what is a very long project. But what have been some of your favourite or most memorable findings so far? Maybe a favourite recipe or a discovery about them? So, yes, I've got a good example um, of this. And I was looking at some of the manuscripts that are here at the UL and preparing to just give a little talk um, about the project. And I was looking at a legal manuscript, which you might think is a strange kind of context in which to find medical knowledge. And you might expect in a non-medical context that this is going to be kind of miscellaneous and somebody's just jotted it down on a on an end leaf and a blank bit of blank space and it's there's no sort of organizing principle behind it. But what I found in this manuscript actually was anything but that. And there were a couple of dozen uh, remedies, all for the same complaint, which was gout. So um, insert obvious joke about you know medieval lawyers and their rich diets here. Um, and uh, though it's described as bone ache, which is a you know the common way of describing gout, uh, and this remedy, um, a, a sort of content warning for your listeners, um, it does involve um, some interesting um, animal-based ingredients. So so dog lovers may wish to to to, to stop their ears. So it says. Um, Take in the month of May a handful uh, or two of sage royal and a great quantity of blackened snails and a quantity of boar's grease. Then take a fat dog whelp, so a little puppy, uh, that is um, suckling on his, on, upon his dam, so he's, he's still, a, still a little baby puppy, um, and strip him out of his skin and take his um, spleen and liver out of his belly uh, and make his belly clean as you can. And then put the sage, the snails, and the boar's grease into the belly of the whelp and prick the belly fast. So stitch it closed, basically. Um, and then put the whelp upon a spit and let him be roast as long as he will drop. So you're basically rendering the fat off, off him. And receive the dropping in a clean vessel. And when he will drop no more, take him off the spit and chop him all into pieces. And then with a little more boar's grease, fry him as dry as you can. So you're getting absolutely everything out of this, this puppy. And as much moist as you can get of that, put into the dropping and then put them in a glass. So in a, a kind of glass vessel. And it will look like a green salve. And therewith, anoint the patient any time of the year when it is needed. Now, I would have thought that is a pretty unusual recipe and it's very um it's remarkable let's let's call it that and i thought there's no way that this is going to, that i'm going to find this anywhere else and then a few weeks later i was looking at another manuscript at the ul and lo and behold i found a very similar version of the same recipe um though the only difference is that it recommended the use of a cat a male cat instead of a puppy but fundamentally it was the same recipe. Now, it's incredibly elaborate and a bit weird. And you do wonder, was this ever used? And there's a researcher here, um, a postdoctoral researcher called Hannah Bauer, who, was, um, who works on recipes and has, has published a book recently kind of 
arguing that some of the contents of these books were actually never really used as medical treatments, but had a kind of entertainment value. And often you get recipes of different genres mixed together. You have medical recipes, but then you also have kind of guides for like performing tricks. There are also medical charms, you know, these sort of performative rituals that you would you would perform, uh, that you would do in order to, um, let's say, help a, help a woman who's... Um, travailing of child um in the in in what one of these manuscripts says which describes writing a charm on a on a strip of parchment and tying it round her round her leg when she's in labor so it may be that these were just intended to kind of amuse or be entertaining rather than practical medical application so we I, that's something that this recipe project the transcription project might contribute towards a kind of greater understanding of That was Dr. James Freeman. He's a medieval manuscript specialist and the principal investigator for the Curious Cures in Cambridge Libraries project, which is funded by the Wellcome Trust. If you're intrigued to find out more about the project, go to cam.ac.uk and search for Curious Medieval Medicine. And if you'd like to hear more on the history of medicine more generally, check out our Everything You Want to Know episode on the subject. Just search for History of Medicine to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.